0: Right. Well, I think we missed an announcement here to dismiss the 7 to 10-year-olds to our catechism class. Uh, So I'll pray in just a minute. So if you want to, if there's any 7 to 10-year-olds who want to go through this door here, I'm sure they're just getting started. We'd love to have you in that class uh, during the sermon. We're finishing up today a series in the book of Philippians, which I've really enjoyed uh, studying with you. Next week, we'll begin a new series And the series that we're going to be doing is a short uh, series looking at good works. Um, And that is a tricky topic, but in Titus chapter 2, we're told that we are to be zealous for good works. And so we're going to be spending a few weeks looking at the things that Scripture calls us to be zealous for, uh, that it challenges us uh, in the area of good works, while still focusing all of our hope On the gospel of Jesus Christ, good works do not save us, but yet they are the result of the salvation that God has given to us. And so, I'm excited to do that next week. But this is a beautiful passage in Philippians to end this series. And before we come and study it together, let's turn and ask for God's help in prayer, Father. I pray that this morning by Your Spirit, in Your Son, to the glory of You, God the Father, we would learn the secret of having a sufficient, enough, contented life in You. I pray that You would so fill us with the riches and the goodness of Jesus Christ that we would be fully satisfied in Him, that we would not need anything else. So I pray for us, Father, as we come to Your Word, I pray that it would speak truth. Your Word is truth. It has the power to shape us, to move us, to excite us, to challenge us. And we pray, Lord, that You would be here by Your Spirit to help us do just that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen be talking today about the secret of contentment. Paul ends this letter talking about uh, and actually showing his own level of contentment with where he is in life, no matter the circumstance that he is in. And it made me think this week, a very common fable, uh, kind of a tale that you've probably heard before, uh, but you can easily find about a zillion different versions of it on the internet. Uh, I've heard it several different times, but it's this fable about a wealthy businessman and a poor fisherman. And the story goes something like this. There's a wealthy businessman walking on the beach, and he stumbles upon this poor fisherman who's lying asleep or half dozing in, uh, in his boat. And uh, the, the, the businessman says to this guy, uh, why are you not fishing? There is still plenty of time left in the day. To which the fisherman says, I've already caught enough fish for today. The businessman says, well, if you catch more than what you need, then you'll be able to sell the extra. And then the fisherman says, this will be a common refrain in this story. What is the benefit of that? And the businessman, you know, he rolls up his sleeves. He's a businessman. He's like, well, I can tell you exactly what the, the benefit is. You could make more money. Uh, and, and, and with that extra, you would have more money. And the fisherman says, well, what's the benefit in having more money? And then the businessman says, well, if you had more money, you could buy a better net than you are using. And the, the fisherman says, well, what's the benefit in a better net? And the businessman says, well, if you had a better net, then you could catch more fish, which would give you more money, which would then enable you to buy perhaps another boat. Maybe you could have two or three boats. Maybe you could make enough money to hire even more people to help you fish. And the fisherman says, well, what is the benefit in that? And the businessman says, well, you could have enough money then to really enjoy life. And here is the punchline from the fisherman, what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) I've heard another version of that story where uh, the the businessman actually says, you know, if you had had all that money, then you could do whatever you wanted to with your time. And then the fisherman says, and he says to to the fisherman, what would you do with all that extra time? And the fisherman says, well, I'd probably go fishing. (laughs) And see how the circle goes back. There is a hidden irony in this chase for contentment. And if we're not careful, the irony will push us into a a strange arrangement where we can chase after things that are already ours. We're in constant danger of believing this lie. Contentment is rooted in more or different More or different? Oftentimes when we talk about contentment, we say, don't believe in the lie of more. That is, more money, more time, more opportunities, more experiences. And I almost want to add a different category for those of us who are on the younger side. I see a lot of us who are motivated seemingly generationally by different things. Um, I don't know a lot of young people who are just like, I just want more money, more money, more money. There are some, of course, but what I do see a lot of younger people saying is I want different. I want a different life. I want a different living situation. I want a different career. It's not necessarily that I want more. I just want to be able to craft exactly what my life is going to be. And there is a catch there. There is a lie there that contentment is rooted in more and or different, but it's not. Contentment is something that we have within ourselves. It's not situated in circumstances. And this is very hard for all of us. There's a lot of cultural and uh, even biological factors that prevent us from feeling content. I wrote down four headwinds, four um, things, drags against our contentment, things that stand in the way, the barriers of contentment. And one of them would be the, uh, what's often called the hedonic treadmill. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. The hedonic treadmill means that no matter what our circumstances are, they've studied this. I say they, you know, social scientists have studied that no matter what our circumstances are, Almost all of us return to a stable level of happiness and well-being, given time. So you look at the person who wins the lottery. Their life increases so much better for a moment, but the hedonic treadmill says that after a time, they will return back to the very baseline of their happiness. There's something called Parkinson's law. That'd be the second one that Parkinson's law says that work expands to fill whatever time is given to it. So if you give yourself three hours to do something, it'll take you three hours. If you give yourself two hours, it'll take you two. There's a financial version of this where it says that the needs that we have in life, the needs, quote-unquote needs, will rise with our level of income. Somehow you still say the same even though you're making 20,000 more than you did, 10,000 more than you did a few years ago, whatever it may be, somehow it all seems to just stay the same. Then there's comparison. That's a drag on contentment. Comparison. No matter what we have, we're always judging ourselves by those who are around us and particularly those who have a little bit more or a little bit different. Finally, I think one of the drags, especially for uh, young generations, but, but many others as well, is the, the contemplation of drastic change. I think this is a barrier to contentment. What I mean by that is this, there's a temptation for all of us that if I just do something different, if I change something, then my contentment will come and we've without knowing it situated our contentment in a different living place, in a different house, in a different career, in a different family, whatever it may be. So as we turn to Philippians 4, how do we find contentment with so many barriers against us? How do we do that? Paul addresses this question. And what I want us to see is two things. There is a secret we need to learn and secondly, there are satisfactions we need to enjoy that are different than more and different. There's a secret we need to learn, and there are satisfactions we need to enjoy. So first, there's a secret that we need to learn. Let me bury the lead for just a moment. I'm going to tell you what the secret is in just a minute. But first thing I want us to see is this. Contentment is a learned behavior. Contentment is a learned behavior. Do you notice what, how Paul says this in verse 11? He says it twice, actually. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, here it is again, I have learned the secret. Contentment is a learned behavior. Contentment, in other words, is not natural to sinners in a sinful world. It's not the natural response. In fact, when the presence of sin came into the world, discontentment came in at the same time. Discontent was tied to the first sin. When You remember the story. God said, you, shall, you, have, you may eat of all the trees in the garden. They're all there for you. Everything is yours except for this one tree, and Adam and Eve, turns out they were hungry only for the thing that they, they couldn't have. They were hungry only for the thing they couldn't have. See, discontentment came in with sin. Paul himself writing this saying, I, I've learned contentment. That's not a natural behavior for the sinner, Paul. Paul, if you know anything about his story, There was not enough education that he could get. There was not enough honor that he could accrue to his name. There's not enough zealousness for the righteousness of the law that he could attain. He wanted more and more. But here later in his life, as he's in prison for the sake of the gospel, he says, I've learned something. I've learned how to be content. And I just want to pause on that and to say that that changes the way that we should talk about contentment, doesn't it? Sometimes we act like it's a status that we need to be. I need to be content. That's how we say that. I just need to be content. And it's almost like I'm not that type of person. But Paul says, no, this is a learned behavior. What if we said instead that in this situation that I'm in, I need to learn some contentment? See, that puts the responsibility back on us. It puts the ball back in our court. Paul learned contentment. He extended effort, and then he learned how to be content. What did he learn? Well, he learned a secret. The secret is the, the word there, I, I have a secret for, the, for contentment, is a unique word related to the word mystery. There's a, a mystery here. And in its passive form, this is a, the passive form of this, ver, this word here. And he says, I have learned the secret. What it means is, to be initiated, like to be initiated into a club. And Paul says, I've, I've, I've been initiated into a mystery. Now I know something. Now I've learned something that I didn't have before. What is the secret? It's found in verse 13. Let me read it for us. One of the most famous and possibly most misunderstood verses in the Bible. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So in a word, what Paul is saying here is the secret to contentment is to believe that God in Christ, I'm going to explain that in a minute, that God in Christ, not any desirable circumstance, is sufficient for every need you have. There's a perspective change. There's a mystery that you need to be initiated into. And Paul says it's this. To believe. You have to believe that God is in Christ, not a particular circumstance is sufficient for every need that you have. Because, as we've said, the desirability of the situation or the circumstance changes. Look at verse 12, If Paul says this, I know how to be brought low. Interesting word choice there. The brought low, same word for the humiliation of Christ in, Philipp, in chapter 2, where he says, um, the, the one who was brought low, humiliation of Christ. He says, I know how Christ felt. I have been brought low to the lowest point, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. He's covering the spectrum of circumstances. And then he says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I can do all things. What does he mean by I can do all things? This is where the misunderstanding of this verse comes in. Paul is not saying that he can do anything that he thinks of any action or any purpose in the world. He's not motivating towards achievement. He is motivating towards endurance. Here's what I mean. He's trusting in Christ's strength to be able to enable him for any circumstance. So he's not saying to the five foot four person in this room, five foot two, whatever, you know, he's not saying that if you had enough faith, if you really trusted in Christ, you could dunk a basketball. All right. He's not saying to the businessman or woman in here or the wealth manager that if you trust in the strength of Christ, then you could do all things, including meeting your quarter one goals. Like Christ will strengthen you to do that. And if he, if you don't, Meet him. Maybe, maybe you weren't trusting in Christ enough. He's not saying to the mom or the dad in the room who is struggling with their children that if you trust in the strength of Christ, you will be able to be super mom, super dad, and your kids will be obedient all the time. That's not the all things that he's talking about. I can do all things. What does he mean? He's saying whether you can dunk a basketball or not whether you meet your quarter one goals or not, whether or not you're feeling like super mom or super dad, whether the circumstance is that you're getting what you want or that you're not getting what you want, any of those circumstances, in any one of those, you can be content. Because you have something greater. You have something more transcendent. You have something better. You have Christ Himself. And that doesn't change with the circumstance that you're in. I can do all things, meaning I can go through any season because I have Christ. This is not a prayer for a football game to be the winning team. This is a prayer for a funeral at an unexpected death. This is a prayer When you receive an unexpected inheritance, it's abundance or lack. Whenever you have entered into a new season and it feels like you are out of your depth, you remember this Christ can strengthen you for this season. I can do all those things, I can have nothing. Or I could have everything that I possibly want. And in any circumstance, Christ is my strength. Anytime your situation changes and you are out of your depth, the secret is to know that Christ has not changed with your circumstances. And Paul's not only saying that I've learned this, he's, he's confidently sharing the secret with us. Look at the beautiful prayer at the end where he says in verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm so confident. My God, he says there, it's not beautiful, he says my God and then our God. The God that I know is going to supply every need and our God will have the glory forever and ever because that does not change. Christ infuses with strength your season. Whatever kind of season it is. How does Christ do that? He gives us the riches of Himself. That's why I said, God in Christ is sufficient for every need. Paul emphasizes this when he says, I can do all things through Him that is Christ who strengthens me. He also says here at the end, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus where the abundance comes. What are these riches? This is everything that Christ offers us. This is His perfect life. This is His obedience to the Father. This is His being Acquainted with sorrows on our behalf. This is his death on the cross. This is his intercession, perpetually pleading to the Father on our behalf. This is his ascension into the heavenly places. This is his reigning and ruling for all of time. All of those riches are applied to us in the good news, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, You must come to Christ in order to be content. You must come to Christ in order to be content. The word content means sufficient enough. And if it's rooted, if your desires and your hopes are rooted in anything else, it will not be sufficient. It will not be enough. Christ is the only sufficient one. And if you're waiting for more or you're waiting for different to find contentment, you will be waiting all your life because contentment is only found in the riches of Christ Jesus. God in Christ gives us everything we need and it means that literally everything else can be stripped away. Can be stripped away, like Job, who lost his family and his livelihood and his crops and some of his friends, like Corey Tinboom, lost everything for a season, family members, money, time in a concentration camp it 's almost sometimes when we get pushed to those extremes that we see what we really are hoping in. And when we realize that it's Christ who's the only one that's sufficient, Malcolm Muggeridge, who's a British writer earlier this century, um, became a Christian later in life. He says this beautiful thing in one of his books. It is precisely when every recourse this world offers has been explored and found wanting. When every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and is not forthcoming, when in the shivering cold, the last log has been thrown on the fire, and in the gathering darkness, every glimpse of light has finally flickered out, it is then that Christ's hand reaches out, sure and firm, that his words bring their inexpressible comforts, that his light shines brightest, abolishing the darkness forever, so that finding in everything only deception and nothingness, the soul is constrained to have recourse to God Himself and to rest content. When every other recourse has been tried and found wanting, you return back to God and you see that this is the only place of real contentment. We need to learn the secret. God in Christ is sufficient for every need that you have. Secondly, the satisfactions we need to enjoy. You know, when we are found in the riches of Christ, the things that we are satisfied by should change over time. Over time, we should see the things that we enjoy are not so much rooted in more and different What are they rooted in? I want to just highlight a few things from the way that Paul speaks to the Philippians. What are the things that that he is enjoying here? Number one, other-centeredness. Other-centeredness. Do you notice the beautiful concern that Paul has for the Philippians and the Philippians have for Paul? It's all over this book, but Paul has written this and care for them. He loves this church. He's writing this encouraging letter to them. But then their concern for him, look at verse 10: I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul's in a bad circumstance in the prison, and, and the Philippians want to help him. And they're just looking for an opportunity to help him. And he says, I rejoice in that. Isn't that so good? To have somebody that cares for you. That they push pause on their own life and their own desires and their own search for contentment. And they were actually concerned about someone else. See, the need to satisfy our own longings consumes much of our energy when we are discontent. But when we are content, we can feel the freedom to be focused on others. You can feel motivated by a fear of things. By, by not the fear of things for, to be more, or different, or better, but by what would be good for others. Another one, generosity. Paul notices that the Philippians are generous towards him. He's obviously grateful. They give this financial gift when he is in need. But he's being generous toward them as well. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and in receiving except you only. There's a giving and a receiving. Paul is generous with his time, with his teaching, with his love for them. They are generous towards him and they send him a financial gift. They were truly concerned about Him and it resulted in generosity, which is a luxury that contentment affords. When we are content, we are able to give more and more away because we're not holding on so stressfully. The extra can go elsewhere. And Paul is clear that it's not the personal benefit that he's after. He's not saying... Uh, You needed to do this for me, and therefore I required it. And there, he's like, "I didn't seek the gift; you just gave it, and I rejoice in that even more." And actually, he says that there's going to be a reward for them. Look at verse 17: "Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit." The word "credit" there, or account to your account, it's a business term. And he says, your generosity is an investment into the kingdom of God. That's how monetary policy works, value works. We have money and it's rooted in something. The, the US dollar is, is what we we root our money in. It's our stable currency. It, we just got downgraded, actually. If you didn't read about that, our credit as the United States. But anyway, that's another that's a side topic. In theory, the dollar is our it's our stopping place. It's our, it's our value. And he says the kingdom of God is the safest account, credit for your blessing. He's not talking about gaining God's righteousness. Look what he says about it. It's very, very important that you see what they gain. Look at verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your account. The fruit it's not saying that you've earned some points with God and now he's he's saying you're more righteous and now you'll get into heaven more surely or now you'll have certain earthly blessings that are promised to you none of that he says i'm excited about your fruit i'm excited what it expresses that you have reached a level of contentment so that you have this fruit what is the fruit well it's a good conscience it's the satisfaction of seeing God's work. It's the connection that, that they have now to Paul as God's missionary. Um, it's, it's the smile of God on their obedience to be generous. It's all of the good things that come with generosity. And he says, you have that fruit out of contentment. Three, holy detachment. Paul says, not that I'm seeking, speaking of being in need, not that I seek the gift, verse 17. We certainly get the sense that Paul was happy to receive a gift from them, but we also get the sense that he wasn't stressed about it. He was not worried about his own provision. He's like, you could send the gift or not. When you do, I rejoice. But if you don't, I will be well supplied. As he says, I have everything that I need. That kind of separation from the need to control and the freedom of walking in abundance is what some have called in the Christian tradition holy detachment. It means not detachment like I don't care what happens. It means that in a sense because I trust in God, anything can happen. When I need less and less control, I gain more and more contentment, in other words. Another satisfaction, a final one, joy in what is. Isn't it funny how this passage, even though Paul talks about being humbled and being brought low and hunger, that there's kind of a bubbliness (laughs) to this passage. And he starts out, I rejoice in the Lord. He has... A joy. I am well supplied. Literally, he says, I am affluent with whatever gifts you give or whatever God gives to me. And no person or circumstance can take away my joy. Now, I'm not saying that we don't grieve in those times of hunger and loss. And there isn't a proper place for all of those things. But in retrospect, Paul is able to say, I saw something bigger. There was a, a joy in what the Lord was doing through that season. Let me say something that is so obvious, but it has powerful implications for our contentment, if you think about it long enough. Think, think about this. Because we, we trust in a sovereign God who's in control of everything, whatever is, is the will of God. Whatever is, Your circumstances, your relationships, your children, your job. Whatever is, at least right now, is the will of God. He has ordained for you to be there. He knows exactly where you are. It's obvious, but it's powerful if you think about it. That doesn't mean that we don't pray for different circumstances. We have every freedom to ask for different circumstances. But whatever is, is the will of God. And in those things, there's always the possibility and the probability, if you're a Christian, of finding joy. Let me give you a silly example (laughs) Um, as we close here. of Finding this joy. I'm a southerner. By birthright, I grew up in Mississippi, been here for 10 years, so now I'm a Southwesterner as well. But as a Southerner in the United States, it means, among other things, that I love lots of ice in my drink. Okay, this is a Southern thing, I don't know if you know that or not. Southerners like a lot of ice, like very cold drinks. Um, for years and years, it was the will of God. Whatever is, is the will of God. <laughs> for 10 years, probably. My wife and I and kids later were in houses rented or owned, where the refrigerator did not have an ice maker. And yes <laughs> told you it was silly. It never seemed worth you know, yes, we could have fixed it, but it was like an old refrigerator, so it's like, let's just save up the money and buy a new refrigerator later. And then we never did. And so we just lived in this place of not having the good thing. Well. A few years ago, when our refrigerator just had to be replaced, we bought another another refrigerator with not one but two ice makers, <laughs> right? One in the top, one in the in the bottom, and even still, there's a thrill, you know. Like, but it, but it, you know, there are seasons, of course, where I don't think about it at all, and I think like this has just become normal, the hedonic treadmill, right? I. I just have an ice maker now. Where for years I didn't. And there's a level that returns to that and then what Beck and I try to do is we remind ourselves. You remember when we were in the wilderness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we were wandering far away and the Lord was was still our God, you know, but we didn't have an ice maker. And isn't it glorious? Isn't it glorious to have this ice? And I don't mean to trivialize this, but There is a joy to be had without ice and there's a joy to be had with ice. There's satisfactions in both. There There was seasons of both. There is joy to be had no matter your circumstance. There is a joy in vacation. There is a joy in work. There's a joy in health and fitness. And there is a joy that you find in the hospital. And there is a joy in life and enjoyment of Your children and youth, and there is a joy in age and in grief and in death. All the circumstances, there is a joy in everything when you have the secret. God in Christ is sufficient for every need you have, no matter what the season is. I'll close with Charles Spurgeon. I know I keep saying I'll close, but I got to read this quote. It's It's so good. Charles Spurgeon said this. What a bright light may shine within us when it's all dark without. How firm, how happy, how calm, how peaceful we may be when the world shakes to and fro and the pillars of the earth are removed. How bad can it get? Even death itself, with all its terrible influences, listen to this, has no power to suspend the music of the Christian's heart, but rather makes that music more, become more sweet, more clear, more heavenly to the last kind of act which death can do is to let the earthly strain melt into the heavenly chorus, the temporal joy into the eternal bliss. Let us have confidence then in this Blessed Spirit's power to comfort us. Dear reader, are you looking forward to poverty? meaning are you about to be in poverty? Fear not. The divine spirit can give you in your want a greater plenty than the rich have in their abundance. You know not, this is so good, you know not what joys may be stored up for you in the cottage around which grace will plant the roses of content. Are you conscious of a growing failure in your bodily powers? Do you expect to suffer long nights of languishing and days of pain? Be not sad. That bed may become a throne to you. You little know how every pang that shoots through your body may be a refining fire to consume your dross, a beam of glory to light up the secret parts of your soul. In thee, he closes with a prayer, in thee, my God, my heart shall triumph. Come what may of ills without. Be by thy power, O blessed Spirit, my heart shall be exceedingly glad, though all things should fail me here below. That's the secret. Though everything else fails me here below, I have something secure. Peter says, unperishable, set in heaven for me. It is Christ's riches. God in Christ will give us everything that we need. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for this invitation into the mystery into the secret, and I pray that you would give us the faith to believe the secret, that even as we are filled at your table, that we would find our desires for more and different to fade away, and what would be replaced is the internal sure knowledge that we already have it that it's already ours, that Christ has given us himself and offers himself even today by faith and also physically at the table to strengthen us to find in him all sufficiency. Would you enable us to experience that this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.